Let me begin this morning with thanks to uh, Pastor Randy and the session here for the kind invitation for me to join you uh, over the weekend as we spend some time going through the Book of Romans, and then for me to participate in this special occasion of ordaining new men to the session where I'm grateful to be here. Let me bring greetings from Westminster Seminary, California, which is in San Diego area. Escondido is the city where we are. That's where Adrian went to school, uh, by which we actually know um, Elder Stu. And then, uh, as, as he has introduced, I'm Sarah's brother, which is my claim to fame uh, here. Um, we bring greetings because this is a partnership in Christ, as it was prayed that we are belong to a larger church. And as brother and sisters of Christ Jesus, I'm very glad to be here to join you in worship this morning. This morning, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is our text for this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So for the reading of this word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, O Lord, for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that you bring us together as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters belonging to one family, praising and lifting up our prayers to our Father in heaven. Thank you for allowing us to worship you in this way, which is a reminder of our place before you in heaven for all eternity. And we ask that, O Lord, this morning that you open our eyes so that we may see your presence, that you open our ears, O Lord, that we may hear your voice directly from the word, that you open our hearts, O Lord, that these things will not only stretch our minds, but truly convict our hearts for them to be applied to our lives. For we pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, we live in a time that idolizes success. Many of us grew up in a culture, uh, whether it's American culture or Asian culture, that place a high value on winning and succeeding in some way. A few years back, Amy Chua, who herself is a professor of law at Yale uh, Law School, wrote a book called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom, which became a popular phrase used for parents who are really on top of their kids, arguing that Chinese parenting is superior to any other kinds of parenting. While cringing at the extreme attitude and actions of the book, many parents, myself included, were left wondering whether they're doing enough for their children. Because I think many of us agree with her premise that academic achievement, Ivy League schools, and prominent and well-paying jobs are all indications of success. Perhaps we agree with Garrison Keillor in dreaming of a perfect place called Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children 
are above average. Don't misunderstand me, please. I have nothing against success or successes. But I do wrestle with how our cultural norms affect our faith and the way we practice our faith. While these standards of success may be well and good in society, although I have my own doubts, I wonder if such notions of success have infiltrated the way we do church and the way we think about our own faith. I'm left wondering this morning about these questions. First, what is a successful Christian? And two, who determines someone successful? One of the things that we have to understand as we get into the book of Corinth is the situation in the church of Corinth. Many of us know about the disunity in the church, which dominates the themes and ideas found in this letter. And it involves multiple issues that come to fore as Paul writes the letter. There is the issue of power and wealth. That is, it's a port city. And its location and its proximity to a port meant that this Roman colony inevitably attracted traders, freed slaves, entrepreneurs, and sailors. It was a place where one can make a fortune and often lived a life that may not be an ideal one for many of us. Because one of the focus points of many who come to this city is they want to make a name for themselves. It was about becoming somebody. One of the things that we as Americans may not see right away about the first century is that there is this culture of patronage. Patronage being where who you know is much more important than what you do. And who you know provided a way for you to work yourself up the ladder. Powerful patrons, benefactors, provided their clients with money, contracts, and oftentimes inclusion. And of course, the recipients were expected to be loyal to their patrons and benefactors, promote their reputation for honor and generosity, and play this endless game of self-promotion, which is carefully calibrated. According to Ben Witherington, who is a fairly well-known New Testament scholar, he says Corinth became a magnet for the socially ambitious, for status-hungry people. The question for us this morning is that these social pressures were obviously immense. And how was the church affected by it? Well, for the church which is immature and oftentimes new as we see them, these pressures were still shaping them instead of the transformation that comes from the knowledge of the gospel. The concerned apostle addresses the abuses at the Lord's table, a notorious case of immorality, public litigation among the believers, uncertainties about the place of marriage, and propriety of eating foods offered to the idols. That is a church full of people who are hungry to impress others and climb a little higher up the scales of social approval will not be a church characterized by deep spiritual maturity or unity. Like a tree that looks good on the outside but rotting on the inside only to be found out when the wind blows hard, here's a church in Corinth where it was rotting away internally that Paul wants us to address. This affected the way Corinthians viewed leadership and even life before God. Some followed Apollos. This is the reason for the uh, division, isn't it? They followed Apollos who represented the ideals of the time. Well-educated, well-versed, rhetorically powerful, and looked like the part 
of someone who would lead the church. Some followed Cephas, or Peter as we know him, for his experience. After all, he's got ample years of experience having known the Lord and followed him. But Paul? Who is this Paul? What does he have to offer? They seem to have been unimpressed with Paul's lack of eloquent wisdom and his appearance of them in weakness and meekness. And even he admits that he was not a looker. And as a result, people looked at him basically said, Paul was not worthy of the kind of attention that we ought to give. This is where Paul comes in, recognizing the condition of the Corinthians and asks questions about leadership. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. This is how one should regard us. How should they regard Paul and Apollos, Cephas and others, and all of us that are here, both Christians as well as chosen leaders in the church? He says, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. It's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Following his discussions in the previous chapters, he employs two descriptions for those who are leaders in the church. They are servants. They are stewards. Now, much can be said about these individual metaphors. We can say that the word servant often means an assistant or junior officer. Or that there are other histories behind these titles and metaphors that we can discuss. We can point out that the stewards usually implies managing a household often a slave, or even an estate manager, someone who handles money and the affairs of the household. However, our interest this morning is not further describing the metaphors, but focusing on the two implications of these metaphors. That is, these are both individuals who live in dependence and who live under authority. Those are the two concepts that we want to focus on this morning. Here, one thing we do know is that both metaphors emphasize for us that these believers and these leaders in the church live in dependence, for they have delegated authority. Paul and other leaders of the church have no authority of their own. Their authority was merely given to them. It's no doubt that they are in positions of some authority. They were no ordinary servants. They were servants of Christ. And this is to be heralded and exalted in some way. And of course, they were entrusted with something so precious as he says, the mysteries of God. But make no mistake, friends, this authority they possessed was given to them. Paul was not an independent guru or an extraordinarily gifted leader, but a mere servant whose authority was delegated to him by his master, Jesus Christ. As servants... They had no right of self-determination, but they were given a task by their master. Paul speaks of one specific responsibility, to be stewards of the mysteries of God. We hear this in 1 Corinthians 2.7 when he says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That gives us explanation of what Paul is saying here, where Paul is not saying that the gospel is mysterious, but reminding the mystery and wisdom-seeking Corinthians that the real mystery is God's plan of salvation that was once hidden in the ages past and now revealed in Christ Jesus. 
in an age, age craving for wisdom, this is the revelation of God's wisdom preached by Paul. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the message that they were entrusted with. Not only did they have delegated authority, this authority they possess was to hold dear and proclaim this mystery. This is why Paul says to another community that sought wisdom and this knowledge and fullness, the Colossians, he says this in Colossians 1, 25 through 28, I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he summarizes his mission as, Him we proclaim. It's Christ we proclaim. We proclaim not ourselves. We proclaim not the wisdom of the world. We proclaim Jesus Christ and Him alone. One of the things that we talked about over the weekend was about what does it look like when we are mature? And one of the concepts that we were discussing was the fact that the world's idea of maturity focuses on growing independence. That is, when you are a child, when you learn to walk on your own, she's able to tie her own shoes, that he's able to bike, she's able to drive, he goes off to college, and later on to get married and be on their own and own a home and have a family. All these things are milestones and markers of maturity, the world says. But the scripture reverses that truth. That is, the older we get, more wise we get, the more knowledge we gain, we become less independent, more, more dependent upon God. We recognize we cannot. We do not know enough. We do not have enough maturity. And all that to say is the scripture says the growing sign and characteristic of one's Christian maturity is the fact that we engage our Father in heaven on our knees, recognizing that we don't have the strength or wisdom on our own, but live in full and utter dependence upon Him. And the reason for that is simple, because we live in dependence because our authority is delegated. But there's a second element to this. If we live in dependence upon God and His strength and His wisdom to carry on each and every single day, not only every believer, but in particular the leaders within the church, we are told that there is authority, accountability that we have. That we live with divine accountability. That He possesses delegated, dependent authority grounds Paul's point here. If Paul and his fellow apostles are servants and stewards possessing authority not of their own, two questions naturally follow, I think. First, to whom are they accountable? And second, on what basis will they be judged? I mean, there has to be a standard by which you're going to be judged. And we answer the latter first, because the basis of judgment, we're told, is what we read here in chapter 4, when he says in verse 2, moreover, required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Trustworthiness is what we have. Now, you might have noticed that we have different versions of the ESV. One of the things about English translations is that many, many of the publishers continue to update 
their translations, but they don't always tell you. So you might have before you an English translation that actually has the translation that they be found faithful. It actually flips out of the same coin. Uh, the translations are very similar to one another. What Paul says here is, you're not, you're not being judged or seen accountable by being eloquent. It's not about wisdom. It's not about presence or strength. It's not about leadership potential, nor is it about success that's somehow quantifiable. He says, be found trustworthy. This could also be, as we said, be found faithful. It speaks of servants' faithfulness to the wishes and desires of the master and trustworthiness in his administration of the given task. For God knows not only our actions, he knows our hearts. And the question mark is, has he or she been faithful and trustworthy with the task that has been given? Is he worthy of the trust that has been placed in his care? Dia Carson is a New Testament professor in Chicago, someone I admire very much from afar. He wrote an interesting book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson, D.A. Carson, Don Carson. His father was a Baptist minister in Quebec, ministering among the French Canadians for decades. Part of the reason why he wrote this memoir was to point out that his father, Tom Carson, was an average, ordinary minister didn't see a whole lot of success in life. And toward the end of his life, not only was his body failing, but his mind was really overwhelmed with the sense that from the world's perspective, he had nothing to show. Now, his son is a world-renowned scholar and a pastor. And there is something about the generational passing on of responsibilities and faith that they have. But in writing this, here he writes at length about his love, and affection for his father. In fact, oftentimes, including the letters his dad used to write him. This ordinary pastor's life ends this way when D.A. Carson speaks about the end of his father's life. Remember, we're in Canada here when he says, when he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in parliament. No attention paid by the nation. This is a time when Don Carson, the son, stepped out for a few hours to take care of things. So his father eventually passed away alone, although he was already physically and mentally not aware anyways. But in his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side of, uh, on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor, but because he was a forgiven and faithful man. And he heard the voice of him, whom he longed to hear, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of our Lord. I love this. Because I know my students and I, in the annals of history a hundred years from now, none of us, at least most of us, will not be remembered at all. 
But it doesn't matter. The one that counts remembers. Because he's the one who welcomes us into his arms and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Whatever the world says, he sees and remembers. And the question is, have you been trustworthy and faithful to your responsibility? And the second question we have from this statement is not only how is one to be judged, but who the judge is. Who will decide whether one has been trustworthy and faithful? He says, not the church. More specifically for Paul, not the Corinthians. The Corinthians seem to have judged Paul already as someone unworthy. But to Paul, he's not concerned about that very much. And even further, he's not concerned for the self either. In a surprising statement, he concludes, in fact, I do not even judge myself, he says. Paul is is not aware of anything against himself, but even if he did, it is of no consequence. For Paul, the church and self are two illegitimate tribunals of judgment. Paul's not trying to be flippant but putting things in proper perspective. Ministry is not a popularity contest or an exercise in winning friends and influencing people. Nor is ministry about self-discovery. Feeling bad or good about our own work may have some value, but it has no ultimate significance. Then who judges? He tells us in verse 5, it is the Lord who judges me. He's the only one who is able to see what we have done, and see the contents of our hearts. For oftentimes our motivations are mixed. We can hide our hearts from others, but we cannot hide our hearts from God. We can look holy on the outside, but we cannot cover up the darkness of our hearts. Only God knows what the outer accomplishments are, at the same time see what is deep within our heart. What matters to Paul is what his master thinks. And the only judgment that counts is the final one. The new reality in Christ has already begun. And the present day preoccupation with human judgments is passing away, giving proper place to the judgment of God. Paul then leaves his success and failures to God. What the Corinthians are doing in judging the apostle is premature and beyond their pay grade. The day will come when the Lord will judge his servants. It is he that we serve. We live in dependence and we live under authority. And what we're seeking is faithfulness and trustworthiness. For that's what the Lord, our master, desires from us. What's intriguing here at the end is that there's this tinge of confidence in Paul. He says, then each one will receive commendation from God. That's actually a very positive statement. It's translated commendation. It means praise, recognition. Does Paul know something here? If it is on the last day, and if the judgment will come where God judges you for trustworthiness and faithfulness, what does he know? that he can have this confidence before him. Well, in the previous chapters, in speaking to the Corinthians who are seeking wisdom and worldly success, he's been pointing out that the ways of God are different than the ways of the world. He said, just think about the message that we proclaim. 
For the word, uh, the word of the cross, according to chapter 1, verse 18, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, he says. Just imagine, if God were to appear and ask any one of us, how would I save the world? It's hard for me to imagine any one of us would have come up with the notion that hanging the Son of God on the cross was the best way we can seek salvation for the world. Here, it was viewed as weakness, for that was a death reserved for slaves. It was considered folly because wise and prominent people do not get executed the way the Son of God was. Furthermore, not only the message we proclaim, look at the church. God did not choose his people among the beautiful people, beautiful people here, but not Corinth, right? Here, not among the beautiful people, you know, the glamorous, the gifted, the extroverts, the educated, the wealthy, the athletic, the upright. He points out, rather, he chose believers from the nobodies. This is somewhat awkward when he says it because people were judging him for not being the kind of leader that the world would be impressed by. Paul was not a looker. Paul was not all that uh, eloquent in his speech. His stature of weakness was not considered to be something to be admired. But Paul says they are foolish that the Corinthians, weak and low, Many in the Corinthian church were criticizing Paul for not being wise enough, eloquent enough, suave enough, or polished enough. But he says, if the same worldly standards were applied to the Corinthian church, Paul is happy to report that they are just as insignificant. Because that's not what God judges by. In the eyes of the world, they're simply misfits. It doesn't fit. But Paul knows well that while he may not belong to the world, he may not be recognized by the world, he remembers well to whom they and Paul belong. For he says in chapter 1, verse 30, that they are in Christ. They belong to Christ. In fact, right before he begins this present page uh, passage, he tells them to whom they and Paul belong. He says in 3.23, you are of Christ, he says. I am of Christ, Paul declares. This is where it's significant for Paul and for you and I. You and I, along with Paul, belong to Christ. Your value and your significance is based on the very fact that you belong to him. To put it another way, God doesn't love you because you're valuable or seem to be valuable, but you are valuable because God loves you. It's the reverse of perhaps how we approach God. The world says that you're valuable because of your successes, but God says that you're valuable because you belong to Christ. We belong to Christ, and that is significant and sufficient for God. Last summer was a fun summer for a lot of different reasons. One of them was because the one thing that preoccupies me every four years was happening, which is the Olympics. It's kind of weird because we don't see most of those sports at all during the rest of the three years and probably 11 months. But for some reason, during those two or three weeks, I am preoccupied with rhythmic gymnastics, <laughs> with 
things like in winter, curling, which no one else sees, or during the summer, this idea that somehow throwing a javelin is something of an athletic prowess of some kind. Here, we're mesmerized by these events that are taking place. One thing that happened that was kind of interesting was the Fiji rugby team sang praises at the end, which made rounds, which was surprising to a lot of people. Many are believers there. But the one scene that I remember very well happened on NBC. There is an American diver, a platform diver, 10-meter platform diver, who, for the fun and athleticism, decides to jump off basically a 10-story place, right, which is to land in water. David Padaya was a, uh, a, a, a gold medal winning uh, singles platform diver from four years ago, or now five years ago. He now did a synchronized diving. Somebody thought that, hey, if one person can do it, two people doing it together would be even more interesting. So they won silver. They got close to gold, but they did not win the gold. They won silver. You know how Americans are about gold and the importance of gold. And the NBC reporter came up and interviewed them, asking how do they handle the pressure that they felt. David Badaya replied, it's just an identity crisis, he says. When my mind is on this diving and I'm thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind goes crazy. But we both know that our identity is in Christ. National TV, by the way. Our identity is in Christ, and we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to dive in front of Brazil and in front of the United States. It's been an absolutely thrilling moment for us. The interviewer was slightly surprised, to say the least. And so she turned to his partner, his teammate, Steele Johnson and asked him how he felt, perhaps trying to divert attention. His reply was, the way David just described it was flawless. <laughs> the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace and it let me enjoy the contest. I love that moment. I think it's a phenomenal moment where these two believers display to the world what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. Here, it's not what the world says. It's about what the Lord says. It's not about belonging or at least finding peace with others. It's about belonging to Jesus Christ. And what Paul recognizes is that to those who belong to Jesus Christ, here he says, you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9 say, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. His tinge of confidence stems not from his ability to endure to the end, but his confidence stems from the fact that he belongs to Jesus Christ. And to those who belong to Jesus Christ, God makes a promise. And the promise is, is that he will be faithful to you. God is faithful to whom, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You belong to Jesus Christ and God remains faithful to you. Friends, this is not a rant against success. This is not a praise of mediocrity. Excellence should be pursued in our daily lives. But know this, Christian excellence is not determined by the number of trophies on our walls 
or by a panel of judges who determine our worth. There's a writer not too far from here named Francis Chan um, as a reform guy uh, at a reform seminary. Maybe this is not a good person to mention, but I think he wrote a phenomenal book with a lot of insight. Not everything is perfect, but his insight is phenomenal when he says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Again, he says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Being a successful Christian does not involve extraordinary feats or exceptional accomplishments. And for those candidates in particular, please remember, nobody's calling you a superman. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Pastor Randy or Elder Stu. It's not about them nor I. It's about the Lord to whom we belong. A successful Christian is someone who understands that he or she is not an independent, but lives in utter dependence. A successful Christian is someone who pleases the Lord by being faithful and trustworthy in all things, in things that are seen and unseen by our neighbors and our friends. A successful Christian is someone who knows that his or her standing is not determined by others, but by the Master in heaven who sees and hears all things. A successful Christian does not look for quantifiable evidence of accomplishments, titles, statures, giving, visibility, and so on, but qualitative evidence of change in heart and desires not only in their lives, but in the lives of those who are around them. In a nutshell, a successful Christian is someone who is a normal Christian, doing the very ordinary things that all Christians are expected to do, and doing them faithfully and in a manner that's trustworthy. Friends, I pray that the Lord, by His Spirit, will remind us that we belong to Him, that we live in dependence, and that ultimately, it's God who desires to see from us faithfulness and trustworthiness. And brothers who are being ordained today, remember this. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. And what He seeks from you is not great accomplishments that the world will rejoice in, but those faithful actions desired from His sons that will please your Father in heaven. And what we strive for is not what the world says that we ought to do or what the world might see as our accomplishments, but our simple desire is to hear our Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in the little things. Come in and join in your master's happiness. May the Lord bless you, not only as individuals, but as church, that you may be a faithful beacon of light to all those in Bakersfield who need to hear the gospel. May the Lord bless you, brothers, that he will raise you up as leaders worthy of his calling, faithful and trustworthy until we see him face to face. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Thank you for your reminder to us that we belong to your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not the zeros in our bank accounts. It's not the letters behind our name. It's not the titles that we receive or the trophies on our mantle. But Lord, 
who we are is determined by our knowledge of who you are. That we belong to you, O Lord, is enough for us. Thank you, O Lord, for loving us in your Son. Thank you for changing our identity that we may be called your sons and daughters. Allow us by your Spirit, O Lord, to live a life that is worthy of being called your sons and daughters. Be with our brothers getting ordained today, O Lord. What a, what a wonderful blessing that comes from the Lord that we who are misfits in the eyes of the world may serve you. Pray that you will take away any anxiety, O Lord. Fill us with peace, for he who calls us will also strengthen and enable us to carry forth. Pray that, O Lord, you grant to us growing conviction of the responsibilities. We are your servants and stewards. Use us as you desire us to be used. Pray that our prayers for ourselves would be that we remain faithful and trustworthy before you. That in our lives, that you will hide us, but that your glory may be seen in us. Lord, that your glory will shine in our weaknesses, and our boasting will only be of you and you alone. We thank you for this time. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you turn with me to hymn 457, and let's sing together, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing in response to the word given. <laughs> 